Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher and Andrea Subasetti, the executive editor of Rue Morgue and co-host of the Faculty of Horror podcast. Vampires, werewolves, and Frankenstein's monsters. Oh my. In 1992, horror went fancy with the incredible success of Bram Stoker's Dracula, an Oscar darling for stunning visuals and a new sexy take on the classic tale. How could the Academy voters ignore a silk-draped vampire orgy? Which means violent, erotic, boundary-pushing takes on classic universal monsters for the 90s were all over the 1994 release schedule. But before we get into that... Andrea Subasati, what are the tropes of the classic Universal monster that we should be looking out for in these interpretations by studios other than Universal? Well, I think what's really special about the Universal suite of monsters is not only do they give us these characters that have endured throughout the genre that have been reinterpreted almost like once every decade, there's a new take on it. And, you know, for better or for worse, there's some better than others. But, you know, as a studio, it was also doing things with the business that would resonate uh, for decades afterwards. There's the shared universe, which, you know, we've seen uh, revived to great effect and to not so great effect. And, you know, like the franchise, it, it established so many formulas that went so well that I think a lot of companies tried to emulate those formulas and it didn't always work. And I think that's part of what keeps cinema exciting. Because, of course, we think now of a lot of these monsters as like the original movies were intended to be very scary and then they just beat them to death with very weird sequels like Dracula and his daughters or Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, like things like that. Were these ever actually intended to be scary? Like, what was kind of the point of them? I think the point of them was just to kind of keep the ball rolling and, uh, you know, expose them to a wider and a wider audience, right? Just for cash money. Um, I don't think... I don't think studios are ever really concerned with the purest fans and whether they're satisfying (laughs) hard horror fans, you know? I don't think that's ever ever on anyone's big whiteboard. Somewhere there's a studio executive that's listening to this and he's crying in a corner because you said that, Andrew. I'm not sorry. (laughs) Cry me a river. (laughs) So, Alicia, I know that uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula is on your list of films that you enjoy very much. I will not necessarily call it a favorite, but I know you're a fan of the film. Why do you think the 90s were, like, the time to really hit this, like, let's do this for the 90s. It's sexy. It's erotic. Let's move forward. Well, first of all, I'm fine being called, being, like, saying that, Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1992, Francis Ford Coppola is one of my favorite films. I will die on that sword. I love it so much. And if you've watched season one of A Year in Film, viewers are aware of that because I really went into detail. I think, you know, and this has come up on this podcast so many times when we've looked at both the 70s, when we've looked at the 80s, and now where we're looking at the mid 90s, there seems to be this like 50 year cycle in Hollywood stories where it makes sense to me that something like Wolf and a lot of vampire films, because keep in mind, 
Um, 94 is also Interview with the Vampire, which was pretty big. Um, it's always like this 50 years. And so if you look back, that means, you know, we're, we're looking at the late, let's say the 30s and the 40s. And there you have it. You have just the universal monsters kind of being reborn. What's interesting to me is sort of the IP and the copyright issue, because, of course, if we're talking about Frankenstein, which we're really going to get into, that is a public domain novel, you know, published in 1818. No one really has to license it. Um, You don't have to put Mary Shelley's name on something, although, of course, the James Whale version does. And boy, does the Barana version ever. But, um, you know, you wouldn't have to, like, necessarily pay for material. Now, that changes somewhat because in the 30s, Universal decides that they own the name Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. So that's why we get Mary Shelley's Frankenstein for Kenneth Branagh's version, because they think by putting Mary Shelley in front of Frankenstein, Universal will not sue them. This is um, a Columbia film, so uh, essentially Sony. Um, And that's kind of interesting when we talk about Wolf as well, that, you know, they have to keep kind of in their lane. They can't necessarily reference directly the 1941 Wolfman from 50 years prior, they have to kind of give it its own blood, its own injection. And I think that's why you're seeing things happen every 50 years. Like if if Wolf is 94 and and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is 94, and of course we've had a lot of werewolf films and Frankenstein films since, I think you're going to get the like really traditional remake, I guess, in 2045. (laughs) We should all look forward to it. I think what's interesting to me, and we're going to be talking later on in this series about Dracula 2000, which, oh boy, is these reinventions of, it's so much fun. Um, (laughs) That's actually one, I'm very excited for people to hear that conversation. Um, But something I'm really interested in is this idea that like you have to keep to the lore, but you also have to invent new lore in every single film. So it's the balance of kind of what makes sense. Um, What do you think purists actually prefer? What do you think horror fans like? Like new twists on the characters or sticking to the story, which I think is important for Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Especially with this, like, as beautifully illustrated with this particular selection of films, a bit of both, because sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, I quite like that Frankenstein. I know it's not a great film, but it is wonderful to look at. And, you know, I'd like to maybe preface with the fact that I saw it in high school when we were learning Frankenstein. It had just come out and they showed it to me in a classroom. And it's, it's funny now because... You know, being a being a professional in the horror world, I often take for granted that scary graphic content isn't for everyone. <laughs> and I actually kind of marvel. It, it's not the the goriest film, but it is pretty. You know, it's intense. Yeah. It, has its, it has its own gore. Like I've never seen a childbirth scene from the '90s where the woman has to be cut, and you know that that means to save the child, and you actually see it. Like Ian Holm, who plays her husband and, and Victor Frankenstein's father, actually does the gesture of like basically slicing this woman open um, in, you know, circa 18 or it's the 1700s in this story. Um, I've never I don't think I'd ever seen that. And seeing that in school was highly disturbing. And, and it wasn't high school. This would have been grade school. So it's gory in its very Mary Shelley on brand way as opposed to what we would have been seeing in the 90s in like slasher. All right. Well, I think that's the perfect place for us to get into Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And there really was no reason to think that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein wouldn't be the same critical and commercial smash as Bram Stoker's Dracula. And with the combined powers of Francis Ford Coppola and Shakespearean Wunderkind and four-time Oscar nominee Ken Branagh, this should have been a winner both with critics and at the box office. And instead, it ended up on a number of worst of the year uh, end lists and had original screenwriter Frank 
Frank Darabont saying, and I quote, in my opinion, I think Frankenstein was one of the best things I ever wrote, easily equal to The Green Mile. And that wasn't the movie that Ken Branagh wanted to make. He wanted to make something else. What he made, I thought, was a dunderheaded, ham-fisted mess. Now, there's a lot of claims flying around about what went down during filming, but most of them boil down to the ironic accusation that a movie about one man's hubris may just have been felled by... You got it. One man's hubris. Now, Alicia, is this as big a, mi- a miss as the reviewers the 90s thought it was? I'm going to answer that question in my own opinion, but I'd like to maybe <laughs> preface some things first because it's complicated. Um, are we going with Ken? Are we calling him Ken? We're calling him Kenny? Ken. From my understanding, that's what he goes by on a regular basis. So, you know, it's, it's, I'm just, I'm going with Ken. I'm standing by it like we're well, buddies. Definitely after watching this film now as an adult, because I it, I had slept on it for about a decade um, after seeing it as a kid, I would say after watching this, I feel very strongly that he will only go by Kenneth to people <laughs> who don't know him. Like, that's the vibe I get from yeah. his both directing style in this and probably the persona that he has. Uh, it doesn't matter if he's now the Russian villain in Tenet. He will always be <laughs> Kenneth of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. <laughs> wow. So... Just to Andrea's point about why, why would this be taught in school versus other versions of Frankenstein? It is the closest still to this day, absolutely, to Mary Shelley's original text, which she writes in 1816, well before she's married, um, when she's Mary Wollstonecraft. Uh, It doesn't get published until two years later. And there's, much like this film, a huge critical outcry that... uh, you know, the suspicion, she she does publish it under an anonymous name, but eventually the suspicion that's written by a woman becomes very clear and critics really speak out against it. Um, there is a lot of merits in this film, but watching it from my perspective today, this does have elements of a train wreck <laughs> a little bit. Um, what I do love about it is it, I think it's the first version and maybe one of the only versions outside of like a, a very TV movie or like something from the BBC that reinstates the opening of the book, which is taking place in the Antarctic on, um, not the, the words not maroon, but basically a landlocked boat that's in the ice where, you know, the ship's captain encounters um, Victor Frankenstein and the monster in pursuit. And, while the first act moves really quickly because you're jumping from the future back to the past to another part of the past, at least it really is the kind of prologue of Mary Shelley's original work, which I really appreciate. And you will not see in any form whatsoever in the Universal version, um, which is like 1931 that uh, James Whale directed. So we have a lot of things reinstated, such as the character of Elizabeth, which is a sister-wife scenario. Oh my God. Uh, played, yeah, played by <laughs> Helena Bonham Carter. She's the adopted sister of Victor Frankenstein, who he eventually falls in love with and is going to marry. Um, you have... A lot of the kind of Victor Frankenstein at medical college story reinstated, which I appreciate. So there's a lot of merits here, but where it kind of deviates from the book is is Kenneth. It's Ken. Ken Grano. <laughs> um, in that, you know, when you read Mary Shelley's novel, and I think the James Whale version does this really well, where like the character of Victor is... Um, sullen like very doesn't take care of himself physically is kind of weak and that really plays into why he would tempt himself with playing god here we have super buff 
Kenneth Branagh with his Harlequin romance haircut, and he's shirtless for far too much. Of and covered film. in a gelatin slick. <laughs> like he oh, is a the very amniotic fluid. Man. Yeah, a lot of the science stuff is interesting here because the you know everyone loves a Frank the Frankenstein film and awaits the kind of the birth scene right where the monster is born. Um, here I will give Kenneth Branagh Ken Branagh huge clout because he returns that visual back to the 1910 Frankenstein version. The first version of Frankenstein ever directed was um, a 20 minute film uh, in 1910 by, uh, I think his name's Jay Cyril Dolly. And that was the first version to have this kind of idea of a metal vat full of amniotic or gross fluid. It turns out here it's jello based, (laughs) clear jello based on the film. Um, where like Frankenstein's born out of this metal vat and he brings the metal vat back and I kind of love that. Now I'd like to uh, talk for a second about the casting of the creature but also the casting in general. Now um, Ken Branagh is someone who is known for mixing American and British actors so you do get a variety of accents generally doing Shakespeare if I may point people towards both Denzel Washington and Keanu Reeves in Much Ado About Nothing. One of them does a better job than the other one, we'll just say that. (laughs) Um, But this is interesting because he has cast Aidan Quinn as as the guy who is um, in front of the the boat and is the like the manic captain who's trying to keep moving forward towards the North Pole, but you also have Robert De Niro as the creature, and that is very much like an othering sort of thing where everybody else is from the UK, but these two actors are outsiders and are American. What do we think about this? It's the casting of Robert De Niro, you know, it's kind of it's kind of bewildering in the same way that so much of this film is bewildering. You know, he's clearly a very talented actor. He is clearly capable of uh, intensity and menace. But Frankenstein's monster is also a very tragic figure, and I think yeah, I think that was uh, that was maybe a miss. Uh, as for Aiden and the uh, portmanteau beginning and ending. <laughs> Not a hugely memorable character no. to me. Uh, didn't have a lot of heavy lifting to do. I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of characters in this film are just uh, set dressing for old Kenny. K-Dog. <laughs> K-Dog. Let's go with K-Dog. <laughs> Sooner or later, the best way to cheat death will be to create life. Now you've gone too far. There's only one God, Victor. No, leave God out of this. Listen, if you love someone, they have a sick heart, wouldn't you give them a healthy one? impossible no it's not impossible we can do it we're steps away and if we can do that if we can replace one part of a human being we can replace every part and if we can do that we can design a life we can create a being that will not grow old or sicken one that will be stronger than us better than us one that will be more intelligent than us more civilized than us the most amazing thing to me is I think the casting of John Cleese because it did actually takes me a second because you only actually yeah. see him first and then he talks and I'm like, did you genuinely think you were going to hide one of the most recognizable character actors of the 20th and 21st century beneath a weird chin and some teeth? Like, genuinely. And that is why the central nervous system and its crowning achievement, the brain, are as complicated and mysterious a set of organs as you are ever likely to encounter. Mr. Frankenstein the incision is yours yeah he's he's in full prosthetics like and i think when i saw this i don't know about you andrea but i had no memory of john cleese being in this film from watching it in my childhood until adulthood and kind of like really like kind of squinting my eyes and be like is that is that a fatter version of john cleese or is that john cleese in prosthetics i'm so unclear yeah i'm bewildered why something of a bigger chin would make somebody look more serious and less comedic. It's uh... Uh, Jay Leno, case in point. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm just yeah, kidding. it's a small role too. He plays the professor. I mean, and this is significant. And this is outside of Mary Shelley's text, but um, when Victor Frankenstein goes to steal a brain, it's it's the murdered. It's the brain of his murdered professor, who is quite scientifically astute and creative. And so that plays into hugely how you know it's. He's never called a monster in this film. He's actually credited as the sharp featured man as he is in various versions which is um, incredible i mean it's much catchier than the monster so <laughs> sharp featured man <laughs> yeah it's true but so that really plays into how the de niro embodiment of the creature is learned and you know in, understands science and has this kind of afterlife of this murdered i mean it's his body is the one that it's very complicated his body murders the man who eventually will have his brain? I guess that's, is that the sentence that makes sense? It does. But the thing that I have here is like, okay, if you're going to like really stand by the idea of a sharp featured man, this is an incredibly rounded character design. Like it's very pulpy and mushy with all like the the scar tissue. And I mean, Robert De Niro is a, a jolly looking man, I will say. I would not refer to him as, as sharp featured. And they just kind of add on to that sort of um, fleshiness. Like wouldn't that reflect in the character design if you're going to stand by that? I don't know. I, don't I, think no, I was thinking that about this. I was thinking about, you know, at the time, and like the fact that this film is, is, is supposed to be located in, in, in certain period, long time ago, um, you know, people weren't really exposed to deformity in the same way as we are now. Uh, you didn't kind of have sympathy for um, people with certain conditions. However, there were diseases like leprosy, where like somebody who was very physically disfigured uh, was reviled, not just because people were pieces of shit, but because they would pose an actual threat to the community. And so I find the creature design of the Frankenstein monster really, you know, he he doesn't look necrotic. He doesn't look rotten. He looks crudely cut up and sewn back together. Yeah. But I don't know. I kind of wish he was scarier. I think that's a good point. It really seems medically, as medically accurate as a ridiculous, you know, story like this could be. Um, and like, I, I love the reference to leprosy. I also kept thinking back to the Nick, which is like one of my favorite sort of medical, in some ways, horror uh, texts with like, you know, how pervasive syphilis was where various parts of your body did fall off and need to be kind of placked in or sewn back on or have, you know, a very old fashioned notion of a prosthesis. So I think that that is a really good point where, you know, the body and this takes place, it's written in 1818, uh, it takes place in the 1700s, um, where the body was not contained. It was like very dangerous that like it could go awry very, very quickly based on, and there is a plague actually in this film that's very important to the storyline of, um, is it cholera? It's cholera. It cholera. Yeah. yeah, which which you know takes over the town that uh, Victor is, is studying medicine. So, I mean, that's a huge plot point there. Um, that isn't in the book, but would be absolutely accurate to the time period that Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley was writing. One of the things I think so interesting about this film for me is that we have watched a whole lot of incredibly frantic films in 1994, <laughs> like just mm -hmm. shotgun blasts of movies. And this sits in it. And there's a couple scenes I had to rewatch twice just so I could figure out exactly what was going on because you're so thrown into the velocity of the moment of like a woman being accused of killing a child and then the mob gets her and throws her off a, a, a tower and she's gone. And you're like, sorry, what? Terrifying. What just happened? Yeah, the Justine um, character. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, Helena Bonham 
Carter at the end who dies and, you know, gets uh, self-immolates and then runs screaming and there's a whole, like, thing. It's uh, People need to watch this movie. It's glorious. But it's something that, like, it's interesting the moments he chose to infuse the horror into and take so much from the book, but there's elements of horror that are in the book that I actually think are scarier that he didn't use. He intended to instead turn them into these giant set pieces. So for example, um, Elizabeth, the monster actually kills Elizabeth and then poses her for the monster to find in the book or for uh, for him to find in the book. Whereas this, he tears out her still beating heart right in front of him. Which was like, very much in the trailer. Do you remember this, Andrea? I remember this film being advertised and the, the pulling out the heart was like one of, I think, the one sheet posters that was either probably in the, for the VHS home media, but the, the heart scene was definitely like the heart for better or worse of the trailer where i remember being like oh this film is intense <laughs> i don't remember that that's amazing but yeah. is this something that um do you think this movie is actually intended to be scary or do you think it's intended to be thought-provoking or is it intended to be kind of everything and that's why it fails because there is no actual focus it's just here's all this stuff in these visuals you know i remember being very affected by it when i saw it as an adolescent i was affected by it visually like lena bonham carter i just can't take my eyes off her ever mm-hmm. particularly Particularly when she's in something Tim Burton-y or a period piece, she's just transfixing. And yeah, that Bride of Frankenstein, she was horrific. Yeah, that's a cool design. Compared to the original Universal Bride of Frankenstein, who was just so elegant and gorgeous. You wanted to see her horrific like that. It's also because she's a burn victim, right? So like part of her scalp is missing. It's just, yeah, it's wild. And I guess that that reference to um, Elizabeth, I don't think this is a spoiler. It's all, I think it's also in the trailer where she, instead of facing the, the monster and Victor and choosing a husband, she lights herself on fire. That goes back to, and correct me if I'm wrong, Andrea, Corman's Frankenstein Unbound, right? Like that's sort of the first instance where you have the reanimated Elizabeth for the first time taking agency and deciding not to play the game of these two madmen. And again, I think that's in the wider Frankenstein scholarship that is such a minor little plot point. And yet it's those things in the film that barb into you, like uh, the childbirth scene at the beginning that you mentioned. I was personally horrified at the idea that, you know, she's reanimated and betrothed to this monster. I found that really chilling. Um, so I, I think the strength of the story is that you can pick and choose where you get your scares and where that affects you. And I think a good Frankenstein film is going to balance the scares with the empathy mm-hmm. and the, is the monster really the monster in this story? And to present that in a way that is thought provoking. Horror movies in the 90s also tended to go towards AIDS analogies. Like, that's immediately what everybody wanted to put onto them, uh, especially anything that's bloodborne. We we talked about it in Bram Stoker's Dracula. We're going to talk about it again later in Wolf because that was definitely something that was discussed. Here, Branagh talks about how he wanted it to be more like Oppenheimer getting so caught up in the math that he doesn't realize the repercussions of splitting the atom. And I'm like, okay, I see it. I get it. But now you've got you making love to Helena Bonham Carter on camera and you've had all these other things. So like the intention of what's supposed to be the core scary element, because there's so much flourish around it, I can't connect to that. Did you guys find that as well? I think that harkens back to this film just being such a vanity project and so masturbatory. I think I think Kenny's emphasis was always on Victor's point of view and that's what he wanted to impart with us. And 
Yeah. For me, that didn't really land. He's got such yeah. a, an interesting idea of like how we need to invest in the central relationship between him and Elizabeth. Like that's really what he focused on. And uh, he says, I've got a quote here where he, where he says, when Victor decides to recreate his dead bride in this picture, it's so horrific as to be almost unbearable. When he dances with her, it's impossible to conceive what's happening because of your emotional investment in their relationship. It's your worst nightmare come true before your very eyes. And I'm like, no, I spent the whole time being very creeped out at the fact you wanted to fuck your adopted sister. <laughs> <laughs> this makes me very uncomfortable. Brother and sister, no more. No husband and wife. I will, not to defend, but I will say that was probably more common in the 1700s than in <laughs> 2021. But because it's K-Dog and a very recognizable Helena Bonham Carter, it is a little disturbing. And, you know, the three of us kind of debated whether we should talk about this or not, but I'm going to mention the elephant Bring in the room. Up. This is definitely the film that he cheated on Emma Thompson yeah. <laughs> to with Helena Bonham Carter, ending that very fruitful relationship. I don't know if our listeners have seen Dead Again, which yes. is um, I love. I think is a really sexy, like scary kind of neo noir, uh, starring Emma Thompson and K Dog, which he also directed. But I mean, he really, you know, we were too young in '94 to really understand the implication of this. But this was on the cover of every Hello magazine, like. In, and the implication was because of Frankenstein. Yeah, well, the role was originally written for Emma Thompson in mind that she would be playing Elizabeth because she's always played his partner in films before this. So, like, she plays uh, Beatrice to his Benedict and Much Ado, just to go back to that movie. Um, and he had written Elizabeth for her, and she got offered... Oh, I don't remember what the movie is. She got offered something else. Both of them agreed, yeah, yeah, that's a better movie for you. Go take that. And so he started auditioning people. Interestingly, Kate Winslet was up for this role as mm -hmm. well, which she would have been great in it, but that's why he hired her in Hamlet later. Look at all the things I know. Um, but she, she then, um, ends up in this and yeah, he just fell so head over heels with this wonderful, weird woman. And the two of them had a relationship for, I think like three years and that exploded as well. So, you know, stop having affairs I mean, we on could, sets, people. We could do people. a whole podcast <laughs> on the, the hearts that Helena Bonham Carter, Carter has, broken. has broken. She is such a phenomenal woman. I love her so much and I love just her take on personal relationships and romantic relationships where like even when she was with Tim Burton they owned separate houses they yeah. were kind of close together while raising their kid like she's like yeah I'm not gonna live with the dude that I'm you know having sex with who would want to do that? <laughs> goals hashtag goals yeah I, um, I also like that we did get a choice uh emma thompson quote which uh, of course you know that woman just just a factory of quotes she says it's obvious now why he would have left me for her because we're both mad women with terrible fashion sense <laughs> yeah it's brilliant oh man maybe we should mention when we're talking about helena bonham carter and a bit of tim burton this at one point, Coppola was looking for Burton to direct this, and it would have starred Schwarzenegger as the monster. Um, at another time, it was Gerard Depardieu that Francis Ford Coppola oh was my really God. adamant in um, casting, but the studio was like, you know, Depardieu in the mid-90s was a huge Lothario and heartthrob uh, in Europe, but not a North American box office draw. So that's how we got Robert De Niro, um, which you know, is Coppola and De Niro, that makes sense. And then somehow, like, Kenny, K-Dog, gets inserted in and sort of all hell breaks loose. But uh, I like the idea of picturing a Schwarzenegger Burton. <laughs> and I like picturing a Depardieu. Um, yeah, I think this film is fun to watch. And you can kind of, if you want to research, like, the silent versions of Frankenstein, the whale version of Frankenstein, the Cormans, the, you know, the Morrissey, it's really kind of, it, in context, this is an enjoyable film. On its own, it's a little difficult sometimes. With that assessment, I think it, uh, for all its warts, it's an enjoyable watch. It's an enjoyable watch in a group 
So you can have a laugh at where it gets preposterous rather than being kind of confused by it. Again, I'm thinking of the childbirth scene that just goes on a little too long, a little too much slippy slidey (laughs) with the naked and half naked men. Jello, it's amazing. My mom is a huge Brano fan, like a huge Brano fan, which is how I came to him in my teens. Totally inappropriate crush at that time. But I think that um, there's something that always drove her nuts, which is he does this camera move in almost all of his films, which is wing around the character until you get nauseous. And that's what he does in in the childbirth scene. And I think it's intended to throw you as the audience member as off balance as the character are. He does the same thing in Hamlet. Like you can, it's all over Hamlet. And it's, he's, it's interesting because he's coming from stage and he is, of course, such a Shakespearean stage actor. But when he gets behind a camera, he's like, look at all the tricks I can do that I can't do in theater. And I think he just gets so excited that he gets carried away. I mean, he definitely gets carried away to the extent that Coppola, he refused to show like a fine cut to Coppola and when he did Coppola said you got to cut 30 minutes of that first act he refused like he just was very really stuck to his guns but I think to some extent some other creative intervention and some editing would actually vastly improve this film. Uh, he's still proud of this film. He says, I absolutely, with respect, refute the idea that Frankenstein was terrible. It was reviewed terribly. I absolutely accept. It made money. It is a film that I am proud of. And seven films later, I was still getting gigs as a director and an actor. I will add my own caveat. So there. <laughs> like that's Well, that happens to a lot of white men as history has shown. <laughs> well, <laughs> shit. Yeah, you all get second chances or seventh or eighth or ninth. And think about every female director we've talked about on this podcast, how they would have ginormous hits at the box office and didn't get second chances then. Exactly. All right. So I think we have given Ken his lumps. Um, But honestly, go check this one out. There's a lot of really fun, totally amazing moments. Uh, When we come back, we're going to look at uh, more men making movies, but this time they are assisted by one of the podcast's favorite women. That's coming up after the break. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Before such anticipated matchups like Batman v Superman or Alien vs. Predator came a matchup I didn't even know I wanted until I watched it three times in a row. Spader versus Nicholson, a bad boy battle for the ages. And this could have only made me more joyful if they had also somehow included circa 1989 Kiefer Sutherland, but that is just me. Andrea's nodding. (laughs) However, I am willing to forgive this oversight as this epic pairing was brought to us by the podcast's favorite comedy duo, Nichols and May. Elaine May was the silent partner on this one as she was for the most of the early 90s, although she does have a small cameo that is delightful. 
meaningful. Uh, but this was also a movie that Jack Nicholson had been trying to get made for 12 years, and now people wanted prestige horror. Who wouldn't want a modern werewolf movie about the more heel-nipping than cutthroat world of publishing? Was it worth the wait? Andrea, let's talk wolf. What are we looking at here? What's this movie? Well, this movie concerns Will Randall, played by Jack Nicholson. He's the editor of a publishing house who is facing the possibility of losing his job due to new ownership by a ruthless, ambiguous business tycoon. He's bitten by a wolf after hitting one with his car, and even though he does lose his position to his protege and discovers his wife is cheating with him, <laughs> he feels better than ever. At night, he starts experiencing suspicious blackouts, but by day, you know, he fights to get his job back and even enters a love affair with the boss's wild child daughter. When his estranged wife is murdered, he begins to suspect that his nighttime blackouts pose a danger to those around him, so he consults an expert and starts trying to lock himself up at night. And the film culminates in the discovery that his protege is also undergoing the same transformation. And in the end, Will flees to live out his days as a full-on wolf while his girlfriend concocts a cover-up story for the police. But spoiler, dun-dun-dun, it looks like she's also been bitten. I think werewolf movies are one of the hardest genres of films just because the creature design is always so incredibly difficult to, like your suspension of disbelief is so reliant on how good that makeup is or how good the animatronic is, however they decide to go. Would you agree with that? I would absolutely agree with that. I think for many horror fans, the strength of the werewolf movie lives and dies on its effects and a transformation is expected. Uh, especially at this point in the genre, especially like, you know, the, the foundational transformation in uh, in The Wolfman, the original universe, like it holds really, up. Yeah, it really holds yeah. up. It's like it a, holds up. And then American Lunch Werewolf in London, like you kind of can't get away with what Wolf attempted to do, which is slap some makeup on cut away, especially when you've got Rick Baker involved. What the yeah. fuck? I, yeah. I agree with that. And this is, I mean, we've talked about Rick Baker on the podcast before. Um, and this is Rick Baker working with Jack Nicholson, which apparently Jack Nicholson had a spirit gum allergy, which I can only imagine made things so much harder because <laughs> he couldn't use the proper... He couldn't use proper um, effects and had to use kind of supplements that Jack Nicholson wouldn't react to. But uh, I read a review that compared the werewolf effects to Fraggle Rock. And as a Ow. fan of Fraggle Rock, I felt insulted <laughs> for Fraggle Rock. <laughs> uh, I do have to say that there was like a whole suspicion of like, is he actually allergic to spirit gum or does he not want to have to do like the whole process? And apparently he was accidentally used spirit gum on one day and showed up the next day covered in red welts. And he was like, you used spirit gum, didn't you? He's like, yep. He's like, you're not going to do that again, are you? Nope. Okay, great. So Nicholson wasn't an asshole about it. So that's good. But yeah, not yeah. as spirit gum person um for me i'm like he's already kind of wolfish so i do he's got the hairline of eddie munster which definitely <laughs> helps right <laughs> like he's, i love i mean i love jack nicholson's hairline but it's very very widow's peak very eddie munster so it makes sense Again, like a, a werewolf movie, your protagonist has to pull off a real Jekyll and Hyde type situation. The wolf persona, the the aggressive whatever has to be so contrary to um, his, his, his daytime gig. And I just had a really hard time buying 
Jack Nicholson as this Will Marshall, you know, he was just so beige. I didn't care about him. I didn't understand him. The monologues were weird. And I felt like insofar as I've seen Jack Nicholson be so menacing and intense and scary, even as a wolf, he just looked preposterous. It kind of helped me. So just two thoughts here. It kind of helped me um, to think about it less as a, like, and this is so stupid. Why would you have a film like Wolf and then force your viewer not to think of it as a werewolf movie? Like, it, it's kind of misleading. I really actually loved this film and I was surprised that I did. I, I This is my first time watching it. Um, I kind of thought of it as like old Hollywood, like Jack Nicholson, I should say new Hollywood, like the kind of renegade 1970s and meeting... Um, the Brat Pack, which is like embodied by James Spader, who is the villain in this film and spoiler alert, becomes a very, uh, he just looks like Teen Wolf for the most part. <laughs> like he's like Teen Wolf versus like Jack Nicholson. And at one point, Jack Nicholson pees on James Spader and it's wonderful. It like gives it's a real. Me the funniest line of the movie, which must have been written by Elaine May. It's very good. Yeah, it's a real like new Hollywood marking its territory on uh, the Brat Pack as being kind of worthless. Um, and that helped me a bit. But yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it, This is a very unusual film. And what strikes me, because in two episodes we're going to talk about, um, I'm not, I'm not on the episode, but with Brendan Ross, uh, Cam and Becky, you're going to talk about In the Mouth of Madness. What is up with like publishers in 1994? Why are there multiple horror films about dudes in publishing that are like senior editors? <laughs> like I don't, when did that become like a horror icon? Well, this one specifically is because the original draft was written by a writer, like a publisher and a writer. So he was technically yeah. writing about himself. So that's kind but of the that. original draft. What wasn't he? He was a lawyer. Yeah, the original draft. He's a lawyer. They were they were going between lawyer or Wall Street kind of tycoon, which would then mean this is kind of Wolf of Wall Street, which yeah. I'm glad they didn't do. And then they settled on sort of neutering, for lack of a better term, their lead character into being um, sort of an impotent down on his luck about to be fired a uh, senior editor of like what really relatively well uh, respected like publishing house when you are a david hyde pierce character's hero like you are his ambition goal <laughs> i think you know there's something going on tell him we've got enough investors to get it off the ground two things go how many investors do we have i don't know i haven't called anybody yet but you want me to say it anyway yes second thing is any of this true not yet you're my god what I think this movie does smartly, which no other wolf werewolf movie does, is you do have like the the sad sack, whatever. He plays the character exhausted, and then he plays the character full of energy. And here's where I think it's interesting, because when they were writing it, they were like, is this an AIDS crisis movie? Is that what this is? Does he have AIDS? And they're like, no, it's not AIDS. I'm like, this is a cocaine amphetamine movie. That's what this is actually about. This mm. is about someone having to find their pep again, and then they find this thing that when they indulge in, it makes them feel good, but it's slowly destroying them and turning them into a monster for me and let me know what you think andrea i just saw it as a film about jack nicholson getting old and <sighs> about most men just getting old and no longer able to uh please their or satisfy their you know wives um and he's really tired and he probably as much as we're supposed to side with him and not like that his publishing house has been bought by a conglomerate and he's getting fired, I get why he's being fired. <laughs> okay, kind of because he's he doesn't have the bite anymore. He doesn't have the fire. And I don't think it's necessarily for me about AIDS or about 
cocaine. I think it's about Jack Nicholson. And then it's also about Mike Nichols, who was really, we haven't even said this is directed by Mike Nichols. Oh, no, we did. We did. We said that. Um, you know, this is Mike Nichols trying his hand at a big blockbuster, what would have been the equivalent of a Marvel film, basically, in the mid 90s, like the pre-superhero film where you could get big box office. And this film made a ton of money in a demographic that's actually quite hard to court. And that's like, adults over the age of 50. So I mean, clearly it knew what it was doing. And I think Nichols was really at a transition point in his career. And and I think Nicholson was too. So you, this is before as good as it gets by just a few years. Like you kind of see like old men figuring out how to be relevant again. Absolutely. That That's absolutely how I read it as well. I think, I, I think even in the mid nineties, you know, uh, this abounds in in popular culture is this anxiety about the white male in decline about you know um uh, political correctness was entering the vernacular uh minorities affirmative action yeah diversity um, hires were huge yeah and so and so i think and i think it mirrors where jack nicholson was in his career i think he is a little bit old for this role i think there's some ick factor Mm -hmm. in uh you know michelle pfeiffer uh, playing his romantic counterpart is a little bit like, I'm glad we don't see them really go at it. There's like no sex in this at all. It's no, really there's, there's some making out and there's no gore either. Like the film just, it, it likes to cut away. So, you know, I'm even reticent to call this one a horror film, but when you're I, watching yeah, the opening agree. credits and you see, holy shit, Rick Baker, holy shit, Ennio Morricone, like you're seeing all this pedigree. And um, it's a MacGuffin. It's a horror yeah. MacGuffin where like, sure, there's a pair of severed fingers in this film and there's no blood. There's no dried blood on them. And this is Rick Baker. He just Jack Nicholson's character just finds a pair of severed fingers in his pocket. It's like, oh, shit. Did I do that last night? <laughs> the deer attack is awesome. Mm-hmm. It bites its throat and comes up with a clean mouth. It drove me crazy. There is a really great behind the scenes clip if people want to go look at it. It was actually put up by Rick Baker's uh, uh, house Mm -hmm. where you can watch him do the whole thing where he's battling the animatronic. It's actually kind of funny. I cringe so hard at that. You know, coming coming back to your point, Andrea, and just kind of yoking it a little bit with what I was saying earlier, there's a really um, key scene where Jack Nicholson is wandering around in the dark at Central Park. And of course, these three racialized youths, because of course it's 94, they're gonna be racialized, are gonna mug him. And I think about every like white man in the 90s in New York's like affluence white man's nightmare is like, oh God, how will I defend myself um, you know, from like the evils of, um, of gangs and stuff like that. And it's like, it's such a moment where I'm like, yeah, this is really what, you're really seeing the fears of exactly as you say, Andrea, like, the, the aging out, inefficient, dying out white male in, in the mid-90s. But here's why I think you can't write this film off entirely as that is because of Elaine May coming in and beefing up that Michelle Pfeiffer character. Yeah. Because she's the one who like comes to his rescue. She's the one who's like, to the cops, you don't talk to them without a lawyer. She's the one who's like always there for him. Even when he's in wolf mode, she's like power, power, power. Did you argue? Don't answer anything else, Will. I'm just trying to clear up a fact, Miss Smith. The clerk who was on last night said that Mr. Randall and his wife had argued. So you already know they argued. These are not straight questions. Just refuse to answer. And because she is kind of a lost soul herself, you figure out at the end, like I really actually think this is about her transformation. It's about him going down and her coming up because now you see she's now come into her own power and she's on the way. And I want to see the sequel with that character with Michelle Pfeiffer now. 
there's real Catwoman vibes in the third act of this, which I appreciated. Um, and I, I'm like you, Andrea, I got icky vibes off of, you know, that relationship, which, you know, she's not in her 20s, but it's still just super gross. Um, and she's also like coming off of the suicide of her brother. And there's a lot of sort of issues in her life that I'm just like, I don't actually buy that she would be into this guy in any way whatsoever. Um and, and so I, easily and so quickly. Yeah, yeah without it. And but I, I see the Elaine May thing. So it's important to know Elaine May. This is when she's still in um, jail, basically, in the 90s. Like we had talked about her on the Labyrinth episode that she was the punch up um, script doctor for Labyrinth in 1986. And she's still like because of Ishtar, not allowed to put her name or she chooses. She might choose not to put her name on things. But this is actually her first collaboration with um, Mike Nichols in 37 years. Everyone says it's the birdcage in 96, which obviously she gets nominated for an Academy Award and has her name on, but it's actually Wolf. I find that so fascinating because I do, like you, Becky, see her touches everywhere. And I think it's a saving grace of this film for me is I did actually laugh multiple times. She does appear, if you look at her uh, credits as an actress, there's very few post, you know, 1990, but she is credited in this film as the uh, wake-up call telephone operator. And she's doing her like pure May Nichols and May voice. Like it's 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 a character that an older person watching us, let's say in their fifties or sixties in nineteen ninety four, would be like, Oh man, I have that record. I have that Elaine <laughs> May Mike Nichols record. Like this is so boomer generation that it hurts. But I actually like this film because to me it is a little document on what the hell was going through the brains of boomers in uh, in the mid 90s. There's also some interesting ideas in like the pre-versions like transforming him for a, from a lawyer into a publisher but like the Alden character that's now played by Christopher Plummer with like all of his deadpan zealous glory um, was originally supposed to be younger and played by Mick Jagger which I genuinely I, I cannot understand. imagine. I don't understand. <laughs> I think I would have found that very distracting. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, I'm, you know, I think even like his character, Plummer's character is a bit of a throwaway because he's set up as the main villain of this film in the first act. And then he just is just so weak by the second and third act and just lets anything happen. Uh, and James Spader kind of like swoops in as the, you know, the teen wolf uh uh junior editor slash werewolf who's gonna he does i mean he gets peed on though it's so great get back to marketing with your asparagus piss swing <laughs> but andrea i have to say like with like spader was not used enough as a villain at this time and i think he could have been used to better effect but this might be the most quintessential spader role more than pretty in pink because of the way he flips so effortlessly from being like nasty 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 to sniveling and then back again right like it's just his little degrees and he does he never goes over the top he's sitting it like right in the middle what do you want me to do i'll do it resign today promise never to see charlotte again just tell me what to do I want you to resign today. Well, I can't do that. I agree with that, but I also think it's such a well-worn Spader archetype that I, as a result, I saw it coming. Ah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we know the Spader. In the back. I didn't expect him to fuck his wife, yeah. but um, 
Yeah, I didn't I did expect, expect that either. In the back. No, he's because he's just that evil, which I do really like. He's like, I'm going to take absolutely everything you have, and I'm going to tell you I love you when I do it, and I'm doing it because I love you. Also, let's just talk quickly about the fact that Allison Janney is in this, and I was so disappointed that she it's didn't her, come back. It's her back. first role. It's oh. her first, like, credited role. She's oh. just a party goer. She does have, like, one line, and you can very clearly see it's Allison Janney, but it's it's uh, pretty early in her career. Um, coming back to Spader, I'm sure that this helped him get Crash. That would make sense to me, like that psychosexualness and that ability to just be repulsive and uh, but also kind of alluring at the same time, revealing a little bit too much about myself. Um, I could see Cronenberg being like, yeah, I can cast this guy as my lead in Crash. Did Crash derail his career? No, I think he derailed his career. Crash was a big hit. I mean, in terms of it was controversial, but uh, I think, you know, I mean, this is a little bit off topic, but by the late 90s, the Brat Pack, other than really um, Demi Moore, we're all in like purgatory um, and rightfully so. And that's why coming back to how I kind of see this as a like true Hollywood legends urinating on the very temporary, you know, craze for this Brat Pack makes sense to me. I just feel like Wolf sits uncomfortably within the horror genre because insofar as it, it borrowed some of, I almost said our <laughs> if I am part of this elite cabal of horror. You are. What are you talking are about? Your interests. I believe they call you a tastemaker. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, well the then queen. I can I can talk about this in the context of, you know, pissing on my suede shoes. <laughs> uh, or at least in my sandbox. Yeah, so far as it's pulling some of our top talent, it is not doing what I need a werewolf movie to do, which yeah. is to say something. And there are so many examples of uh, the werewolf being readopted over the years to say something really interesting. Um, you know, like the original Wolfman had to do with an ancient curse that was long forgotten. The old world is kind of a folk horror thing. And then the more modern takes, such as Ginger Snaps and Teen Wolf, applies this transformation so meaningfully yeah. to puberty or to explore the line between humanity and animals as per the howling. But this one just isn't doing any of that. Um, I, I, I feel the closest metaphor is, is the aging boomer. And even yeah. that, it's kind of bloodless. Yeah, and what do you, how do you feel guilt for those, those men? Like I don't, but I did read a, there's a really good Collider review of this film that's written, I think quite after the fact, maybe even more recently. And they equate this to a cinematic equivalent of having a cheeseburger pizza delivered to a motel room with no functioning toilet. <laughs> And I, as much as I loved this film, I got that. I was like, that is, yeah, it's like, it's, I think what you're saying, Andrew, the buildup, the, the cast, the Rick Baker, this has Giuseppe Rotano as a cinematographer. This has Bo Welsh art direction, like Beetlejuice, Bo Welsh. And then, yeah, that is the like, ooh, cheeseburger pizza. And then you're like, oh, I can't, what am I going to do with this? I have nothing. Oh God, where's this going to go? Like, and it, it goes nowhere. And I don't, I can't understand when, I think I picture myself watching this in the way that you kind of advise listeners, Andrea, to think about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where like, if I were in, um, at the, let's say the Royal Cinema in Toronto, watching this with a hundred people with just enough boxed red wine in me from the concession stand, I would probably have a really great time watching this because it's funny and I would laugh sort of at those at, at those boomer aging out Jack Nicholson because he tried to get this made for 12 years. And sure, 12 years before, like 80, 86 Nicholson, that would have been kind of cool and interesting. But we are very much, as a year in films podcast is entirely based around, in a very 1994 moment here with someone like Nicholson and someone like Mike Nichols, whose career is cut quite short um, by his death in uh 
Well, I guess he was in his 80s. But yeah, just the idea of these wolves being Fraggle Rock, I'm like, oof. I'm just saying, give me a sequel with the Michelle Pfeiffer character and I will be very happy. (laughs) That's all I I want. Uh, Because she was in a very interesting moment too, coming off Catwoman, but people kept offering her just crap. Like, and something I really respect about Michelle Pfeiffer is that for the majority of her career, her choices are flawless. And she stepped away when she needed to step away and then came back at exactly the right time. We talked about this in season one and knocked us out with two incredible movies with Hairspray and Stardust and two... Like completely different amazing villain roles and I think she's proven as like the villain with substance she's almost unmatched and unparalleled in any of these films I think also something we didn't mention is you know let's think about the film The Witches of Eastwick where you now have Wolf which reunites Michelle Pfeiffer and Jack Nicholson and Richard Jenkins who has a very kind of funny role in this I see definitely Elaine May having written entirely as the police investigator um there is, there's actually some shot-for-shot shot sort of homages to Witches of Eastwick in this when Jack Nicholson is somewhat transforming into this... Uh, they never call it a werewolf. It's a demon wolf, right? Um, there's a few things, like, if you think about Witches of Eastwick when he's the devil, like, when they're stabbing him with the voodoo dolls and he starts, like, spinning and, like, crouching and then moaning, it's totally being referenced in Wolf. And I kind of like that, or at least I see it that way. I don't know. Witches of Eastwick is something we're definitely talking about on the show later, right? Probably, yeah. Okay. I mean, that, that seems like a watershed moment in, uh, <laughs> in Boomer <laughs> Boomer film. Just checking, just checking. All right. I think that is just about everything for this episode. So, Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much once again for joining us. Thanks, Becky. It was super fun to have Andrea on. Um, I guess if no one wants to watch Wolf, if you need one reason to watch Wolf, if you're an enthusiast of the Bradbury building and uh, – how it's used in Blade Runner. Look at what it looks like in 1994 because it's very <laughs> different. All right. And Andrea Supersati, thank you so much for joining us. How do people find you and your work? You're fairly ubiquitous. Oh, yeah, exactly. You throw a rock in the horror genre and I should come <laughs> up. And if I haven't, let me know because that means my SEO is failing. <laughs> uh, the editor of Rumorg Magazine still going strong in print after 23 years. Uh, not sure when this episode is going up, but I'm working on our annual double issue and it's going to be a banger. That's coming out this fall. And you can also find me on the Faculty of Horror podcast. It's a monthly horror podcast where we deep dive academic style myself and my co-host Alexandra West. So you can find us on all the podcatchers that exist. Where can we find your dog, Andrea? My dog is on Instagram at Dante of the Dead. Um, uh, a little stinker and I love his guts. I love him. We got to see him beforehand. He is glorious. And you can join us next week, along with prolific podcaster and Now Magazine senior film writer Norm Wilner, as we cover the second British invasion, even though one of the movies is Scottish. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoy the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen, on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. 
The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, co-produced by Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland, and featured Andrea Subasetti and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. 